All right. Today we're talking about the Day of Atonement and we're about to read Leviticus 16, which has instructions for what must happen on the Day of Atonement. That was today's reading, so some of you have already read it. How many of you have already read Leviticus 16 before you came? Those two of you. No, there's a few more. There's more over this side. The number this side had it and up the back. So uh, now, this is what happens on the Day of Atonement. And uh, I want to open, encourage you to open your Bible, Leviticus chapter 16, and read along. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Now, while you're looking for that, just make a couple of comments that, uh, before we begin. Remember, what you're about to hear is something that's more than 3,000 years old. None of us were living in those days. Virtually none of us grew up in the Middle East. So this is one of the strangest things you're ever going to hear. Are you prepared for that? You ready? There's nothing like it in your experience. In your lived experience, there's nothing like what we're about to read. So you need to um, change, I was going to say, take your brain out. Take your brain out of today's culture and transport it back 3,000 years, all right, to the Middle East, to a Middle Eastern reality, and it will make more sense. Here we go. We're going to read all of Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. The Lord said to Moses, warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die for the ark's cover. The place of atonement is there and I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Then he must take the two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance to the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by lot for the Lord, the other goat... The scapegoat chosen by Lot to be sent away will be kept alive standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. After he has slaughtered the bull as a sin offering, he will fill an incense burner with burning coals from the altar that stands before the Lord. Then he will take two handfuls of fragrant powdered incense and will carry the burner and the incense behind the inner curtain. 
There in the Lord's presence, he will put the incense on the burning coals so that a cloud of incense will rise over the ark's cover, the place of atonement that rests on the ark of the covenant. If he follows these instructions, he will not die. Then he must take some of the blood of the bull, dip his finger in it and sprinkle it on the east side of the atonement cover. He must sprinkle blood seven times with his finger in front of the atonement cover. Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. No one else is allowed inside the tabernacle when Aaron enters it for the purification ceremony in the most holy place. No one may enter until he comes out again after purifying himself, his family and all the congregation of Israel, making them right with the Lord. Then Aaron will come out to purify the altar that stands before the Lord. He will do this by taking some of the blood from the bull and the goat and putting it on each of the horns of the altar. Then he must sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times over the altar. In this way, he will cleanse it from Israel's defilement and make it holy. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion and sins of the people of Israel in this way. He will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specifically chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. When Aaron goes back into the tabernacle, he must take off the linen garments he was wearing when he entered the most holy place, and he must leave the garments there. Then he must bathe himself with water in a sacred place, put on his regular garments, and go out to sacrifice a burnt offering for himself and a burnt offering for the people. Through this process, he will purify himself and the people, making them right with the Lord. He must then burn all the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man chosen to drive the scapegoat into the wilderness of Azazel must wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Then he may return to the camp. The bull and the goat presented as sin offerings whose blood Aaron takes into the most holy place for the purification ceremony will be carried outside the camp. The animal's hides, internal organs and dung are all to be burned. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself in water before returning to the camp. On the tenth day of the appointed month in early autumn, you must deny yourselves. Neither native-born Israelites nor foreigners living among you may do any kind of work. This is a permanent law for you. On that day, offerings of purification will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. It will be a Sabbath day of complete rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. This is a permanent law for you. In the future generations, the purification ceremony will be performed by the priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in place of his ancestor Aaron. He will put on the holy linen garments and purify the most holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priests 
and the entire congregation. This is a permanent law for you to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord once each year. Moses followed all these instructions exactly as the Lord had commanded him. I told you it was strange. The Day of Atonement comes around every year. And uh, we know that because we, we rehearse it, we practice it, we go through with it. And so knowing that it was coming around, knowing that I was going to be speaking, I've been preparing for weeks. And one of the things I love about the Bible is when you, when you invest yourself in a particular chapter, such as this chapter, you see new things that you think, why didn't I ever see that before? And that's been happening for me as I've been praying and I've been working to understand it so I could bring something to all of you today. And finally, as I was wrestling and trying to navigate all of the details and the complexity, and I was going, I felt like I got to a place where I could sum this up in one word. I felt like I could sum up the entire chapter of Leviticus 16 in one word. And I realized that's a bold statement. And I don't know what word you would choose. And hopefully my slide's not up on the screen yet, is it? Good. So if you had to choose a, a word, don't call this out. Just think to yourself, what word would you choose to capture, try to capture everything that's going on in Leviticus 16? It took me weeks, so you've only got 10 seconds and that time's up. Now you might choose a different word to the word that I chose, but I will tell you my word. And we can have that slide now. It is the word decontamination. Decontamination. I want you to just think for a moment about what happens when you are going to have someone in your house that you really want to treat well. What do you do? You decontaminate the house, don't you? You clean it, you purify it, don't you? You you go, you look, you work through, you might not do every room because they're not going to go into every room, but you're going to do all of the public places. And while you're at it, you may as well do all the other places as well, hey? You may as well do the whole job properly, right? And then having having cleansed the house, having purified, decontaminated your house or your apartment or wherever you live, what are you then going to do? I'd suggest that the next thing you would do is decontaminate yourself. You're going to have a shower, a bath, you're going to have a wash, you're going to wash yourself, aren't you? And then you're going to put on. So you've had cleaning clothes on, right? You're not, not your good gear, okay? Just your plain, ordinary cleaning rags. You've cleaned your house. Now you've finished cleaning. You're ready to have your guests. So what are you, you're going to take those clothes off and you're going to put them somewhere, right? You're going to shower clean and then you put on your, clean, your glad rags or whatever you call them, your clean clothes, all that kind of stuff. And then you're ready to receive your honoured guest. Okay, I want to suggest to you that that's, that is a pretty good summary of what's going on here, okay? And one of the things that... Um, particularly when you're mopping the floors, and some of you mop floors in your house, I know that. I won't say all of you because I don't know that, but I'm confident some of you. 
And you know what you do when you're mopping the floor? You start in the inner place and you mop your way out the door, don't you? If you read Leviticus 16 carefully, you'll actually see that that's what's going on. Aaron goes into the very inner place called the holy place. Then he comes out a bit further, does the next bit. Then he goes out a bit further, does that bit. And then the whole thing is clean. That is a really simple understanding and explanation of what is going on with the Day of Atonement. It's a process to decontaminate the places and the people. Okay, let's just dig into a bit deeper. So, now that it's a dangerous job. There's only one person qualified to do this job and it's the high priest. He works alone while everyone else watches from a safe distance. When some of you clean your house, it's better for everybody else to watch from a safe distance. <laughs> it's kind of like that. I mean, can you imagine if the cleaners came into this hall right now and tried to clean while we're all here? It's not going to work, is it? So you've got to clear everybody out. So that's pretty much what's going on, right? The high priest changes from his work clothes into, I'm going to use the word hazmat gear. He prepares everything he needs before he goes to site. He gets all his gear together ahead of time and it's a very intricate process. If you read all the things he's got to take, he's got to have all this specific stuff with him and if he doesn't do it exactly, he doesn't have all the right gear, when he gets in particularly into the holy place, it could be curtains for him, literally. He could die. He's warned of that. So it's like, in other words, you've got to take this job really seriously. A lot's at stake. For you as an individual, as a high, if you're the high priest, but a lot's at stake for everybody who's, in, who's part of this thing. So he heads into the contamination zone, the inner zone. He comes out, he washes himself, he reloads his supplies and he re-enters again. And like I said, he cleans from a central location progressively outwards. And then what he does, like everyone, they, you send the contaminated material off-site to a remote location. And then he does the final clean-up, washes himself again. And when the determination, decontamination process is complete, the site is fit for habitation. And the people are also clean. Who's the site fit for habitation? God. It's cleaning up the site for God. This is the annual day of decontamination. It's the purging is another word you could use. It's purging physical space, objects and people of contamination of sin. Now, hopefully a question you're asking is, why did God require this annual ritual of decontamination? Hmm. Why does God want his if you like, the place where he's living and the people he's living amongst to be contaminated every year. Decontaminated. Did I, did I say that? No, decontaminated. It's a big word. I knew I was going to get into trouble picking this word, but it was, it was my word. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. So we'll have that next slide, thank you. And ask this question. 
Why did God or Yahweh create earth and people? Now, I'm using Yahweh uh, specifically because it's a Hebrew word today. And just to make sure everyone is understanding, we're actually talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about any God. We're talking about Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. Why did Yahweh create the earth and people? It's a good question, isn't it? I think the simple answer is that he wanted to. You could say that he already had a heavenly family. He wanted an earthly family. Um, so what did he do? We know he created a beautiful, he created the earth, a beautiful garden, and he put his human images, Adam and Eve, in that garden. He was living in the garden with Adam and Eve. Everything was beautiful and functional. Genesis 1 and 2, the opening scenes of the whole movie. Of that. And then what happens? Things go pear shaped. So now we've got rebellions against Yahweh. That next slide, thank you. So we know there are three rebellions against Yahweh Genesis 3, 6, and 11. You can read those details in your own time. We have talked about them in previous teachings, which are available. So just to summarize, to say these three rebellions, they involve humans and the Elohim. Yahweh created and in that process all humanity is being corrupted and instead of worshipping Yahweh the creator their creator they have become hardened rebels and given their loyalty to lesser Elohim this is just summarizing everything so Elohim are heavenly or divine beings created by Yahweh so very clearly in the from a biblical perspective, there is only one who is not created. It is Yahweh. Everyone else in the heavenly family is created by Yahweh. Everyone in the earthly family, you and me, we are created by him. Okay, so everything has gone pear-shaped and Yahweh's beautiful and functional creation is absolutely devastated. And Yahweh's been dealing with humanity as a single entity. So this next slide will show you that there's a major change that then takes place in Genesis chapter 12, where Yahweh stops dealing with humanity as a single unit. And this is really important. And what he does is he creates the nations of the earth and he installs a rebellious member of his divine council to be the ruler of those nations and they begin to rule over them and they begin to oppress them. And you can read this in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 86. And God is going to bring judgment on those Elohim for their cruelty. What Yahweh then begins to do after this major change, this next slide will show you, he begins with one man and one piece of land. So he's carved up the whole planet. He's allocated all these regions to these lesser Elohim. And he has said, I now, Yahweh, am going to redeem all of humanity, but I'm going to begin with one man. I'm going to start to deal with one person. I'm not dealing with humanity as a whole. I'm going to deal with one person, a man called Abraham. And I'm going to allocate for myself 
this little bit of land in the Middle East, in the center of the earth, from which all life has come from. I'm going to put that man there. And that's where that man and his descendants are going to become the way I save the world. So this is the story that's unfolding in the Bible. And eventually Abraham, that one man, you know the story goes on, he becomes a great nation. They end up in slavery in Egypt. Yahweh saves them from slavery in Egypt. In the desert, when they're journeying, they get to Mount Sinai. Yahweh marries them there, becomes their king, their bridegroom. And after several aborted attempts, they eventually move into this little piece of land called, which we call today, Israel. And remember, modern day Israel is not the piece that's been chopped. It's not the inheritance. You actually read the scriptures. There's several places where the borders are described and they're much bigger than what modern day Israel has allotted. And so that's important to understand because there are scriptures in the Bible where, where God is warning the nations about dividing up his land. So you think about it, like he is the eternal God. He's allotted himself this piece of land. Whoa, you, you try to chop up his inheritance, you've got some big problems coming your way. So the next slide tells us that Yahweh's home is with his people. So what's happening? They're journeying. They've got a, this tent of meeting that they're sending up, this tabernacle they're setting up. But God is living in that with his people. And this is a picture of restoration towards Eden, if you like towards the functionality and the beauty of Eden. So this is actually a statement of hope for the world because Yahweh hasn't withdrawn from the earth, but he's working his plan to save the world and he's doing it through one man, which has become a nation, and, and Yahweh's living with them. And, and they know that Yahweh's with them because there's this dirty, huge, not a dirty, a huge column of smoke in the day that hovers over them and a monstrous cloud of fire at night and Yahweh's in the clouds, right? So they know Yahweh's with us. Isn't that good news? Okay. The one who is the creator of the universe is our God and he's with us. So we're a tiny nation with a tiny piece of land, but yet the eternal uncreated God is with us. Okay, but this next slide shows us Yahweh's people are messy. Humans are messy. You got any humans in your house, you'll find that they're messy. They contaminate themselves and they contaminate Yahweh's home. So every year God says we're going to have a day of purging cleansing, decontaminating the house and the people where I live, the people I live amongst amongst and the where I live. And that's what's going on. And, and this is so Yahweh will be able to continue to live among them. Okay? So remember, remember everything started in the Garden of Eden. That was what God wanted to... He wanted to live on earth with humans. But human contamination is a problem. It's not that it's like, don't think of it as like Superman and Kryptonite. 
you know, and somehow Yahweh gets weakened by a contamination, think about it as a blazing furnace that just consumes every form of decontamination, every form of contamination. Yahweh is that blazing furnace. It's dangerous for humans. That's why the instructions to Aaron are, don't, don't just drop in any time you want behind that curtain, Aaron, where I, li- where I physically am. Right? Leviticus 16 opens with the warning, and what does it warn? It warns Aaron about his two sons, and the, the, we call it the unholy fire that they offered to the Lord that ended in their deaths. It's in the text, you can read it. And the, all the clues are that they went, our dad's a high priest, let's check out what's behind this curtain. What could go wrong? Bang. That's what went wrong. They died. Because you cannot presume to enter the presence of Yahweh without the right gear at his invitation. So, every year there's this day of atonement of purging and purifying physical spaces and people so that Yahweh can continue to live amongst them. Now, this is all a picture of what's going to happen in the future. And then we've got these two goats that are included in the ritual. One is sacrificed to Yahweh as a sin offering. And the second one is the goat for Azazel. And you might be asking, who's Azazel? And the high priest transfers all the sin, iniquity and transgression of the nation onto the head of, his, of the goat that goes to Azazel. Azazel is, um, is believed to have been, I'll put it, the leader of the rebellion in Genesis 6. He's a member of, we believe he's a member of the divine council that actually led the rebellion against Yahweh in Genesis 6. Now that is from extra biblical sources, uh, particularly from the book of Enoch. And I'll just read you this from Dr. Michael Heiser's work in his book, The Unseen Realm. Azazel is regarded as the name of a demon in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient Jewish books. Jewish tradition says that Azazel is the leader of the created Elohim that rebelled against Yahweh in Genesis 6, 1-4, and Yahweh condemned Azazel to roam the earth, particularly the desert. So that's what we believe is going on here. So every year... Azazel gets a special delivery from Yahweh, as this next slide tells you. He gets a nation's worth of sin, iniquity and transgression as this goat is led away into the desert wilderness where Azazel lives, he's led there to die. It's a picture of what will happen. And you see, one picture is of the goat that's offered up for the repentant. There's a sin offering for the repentant ones. For the unrepentant ones, like Azazel, they get all the contamination. All of that is there and sent away into the wilderness. And it's a picture of what Jesus will do when he returns, when he drives all evil and contamination and and rebellion off the planet. Uh, what's the next slide? Okay, so after that goat's gone and 
Yahweh's place has been cleaned, it's been decontaminated, the people have been decontaminated, so Yahweh will continue to live amongst the people. Right. It's a reset. But those of you who are familiar with the story know that at the moment it's not a happy ending. As this next slide shows us that Yahweh's home has been destroyed. Because Abraham's family failed miserably, we know this. And Yahweh's plan to save the entire world through one man from one piece of land it now appears to be a complete disaster. As Yahweh's gone, his home's destroyed, the priesthood has vanished and the rebellious Elohim appear to be defeating their creator. Because that's the end game, that's their end game. We've got to wipe these people out, we've got to stop Yahweh from winning. We will overthrow him. So, uh, next slide is what? Questions. How will Yahweh redeem people from every nation? This is devastation. Where is the high priest qualified to decontaminate the people on the earth? Who can restore the earth for Yahweh to live here? So this cry echoing out of the heart of Yahweh as well as the heart of people who are longing for his return. Now I want you to think for a moment about the pain that's in the heart of Israel on a day like today, the Day of Atonement, where there's no temple. We haven't, I mean, Day of Atonement will start at sunset tonight. But on this day, there's no temple. Yahweh is not living in Jerusalem. They have not become who they were created to be. They have failed miserably. There is no high priest to sacrifice a bull, a goat, a ram. There's nothing, they've got nothing. So they are, it's a devastation. And in the, the agony of what Israel is not become, in the agony of this defeat, without a temple, without altar, without a holy place, they're reduced to doing this, what this next slide shows us. And if you, you might have seen that, that was actually on, the, on uh, one of the news stations last night. This is what they will do. They will take a chook, they'll wave it round their head, wave it round the head of their children as it flaps its wings and squawks away and then it will be sacrificed and given away to people in need. That is the best they got to offer. How devastated. The grief, the loss. Like how humiliating is this? Instead of Yahweh's glorious temple, his glorious presence, filling Israel, overflowing, them being displayed, them being the head and not the tail of the earth, all of these promises, they have failed miserably in that. And the agony and the question is how will Yahweh redeemed this situation. How will he triumph over these lesser divine beings and, re and uh, redeem people for himself? We have an answer and that answer is that the Father himself has provided a great 
high priest for us. We would call him the greater high priest. And this text that's on the screen, that there is one man who is worthy. Jesus Christ has now become the high priest over all. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. The promise that comes through, the hope that comes through. And so this is the hope that we have that Israel does not have because they have not embraced Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And it's so important that we continue to keep the festivals because, as this next slide says, and I've changed the words in this just slightly to what you normally see. Say it with me. These are Yahweh's rehearsals for Yahweh's people to participate in Yahweh's story, centered on Yahweh's son, for Yahweh's glory. So what I'm telling you today and what I'm suggesting to you is that the Day of Atonement, since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and particularly in 70 AD, uh, all hope has been lost. And the Day of Atonement has been uh, mostly emphasized and is spoken about as personal cleansing from sin. I'm saying that a careful reading of the text is that it's more than personal cleansing of sin, of people. It is actually about a greater reality of decontaminating or purifying, cleansing, purging the earth for Yahweh to dwell here. And so I believe as we as believers in Jesus, the Messiah, the great high priest who's done all these things on our behalf, that we are rehearsing uh, the days, what will happen in the days after Jesus returns when uh, you read the prophets very clearly, you'll see that he decontaminates the earth completely. He will remove the stain of sin and rebellion from all of creation. Creation will be restored to a glorious plate, state none of us can imagine. I don't know if you've ever tried to imagine it. I've had a I have go from time to time, but it's beyond anything that we could comprehend of how this earth, how magnificent this earth will be when it's restored to its Eden state. And Yahweh is living here on earth. And we read all about this in Revelation 21 and 22 about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that comes down. And of course, it's a new Jerusalem because Jerusalem's the epicenter of the story of God. And so we're looking for and we're longing for that day when Yahweh will come and live on the earth with us. And so this is how I would sum it up in my last slide. We're prophesying the end of evil. The Day of Atonement is a prophecy that there is a day of permanent decontamination that is yet to come. And I encourage you to look forward to it, anticipate it. When Yahweh 
will live on earth forever. It's a beautiful hope. It's a beautiful picture. Will you pray with me this morning? And as we pray, I I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer for yourself to the Lord and say and ask him, God, in this time, will you search me and decontaminate me and we do that in my home. Lord, will you show me the things that are contaminating my home, my physical space that inhibits the fullness of your presence dwelling with us in our home? Expose it in my life. Lord, we I'm asking God that you would do that in Fremantle Christian College. In every classroom, God, every space of this campus that we own and every space that we lease. Lord, because we want your glorious presence to rest here and to fill this place. So, God, we ask you to decontaminate. We ask you to purify and to purge this place and the people so that your glory can rest here. Father, we, we ask the same, we pray the same for the prayer room as well and the office space down the road. Well, Lord, it's, we want it all. We want it to be clean. We want it to be a place fit for your glory to dwell. An increasing measure, the fullness of your glory, Father, is what we're asking for. We ask for a decontamination of our of our whole city, for purifying for you to dwell here, Lord. We ask it for our nation. Father, we ask for Israel. We ask you, O Lord, in this season, as they enter into the Day of Atonement, this evening as the sun sets, Lord, we ask for the opening of eyes to see and behold the beauty of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who you have appointed as the judge of the living and the dead, the one who is the eternal great high priest who entered the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood and purified and cleansed the way and secured their redemption forever. God, we thank you for this time together. May we be a people can rest amongst have your resting place amongst us Lord we pray we want you to be honoured God Amen